0: All of us have special thoughts and happy memories that flow into the meaning of Christmas for us and for our families. Christmas is a time of celebration for all Christians, so much so that uh, an atheist is said to have once complained to a friend of his that Christians have their holidays to celebrate like Christmas and Easter And he said, Jews have their days to celebrate, like Hanukkah and Passover, but, he said, we atheists don't have a recognized holiday for us. It's unfair discrimination. To which complaint his friend replied, why don't you celebrate April 1st? (laughs) It is true that the Christian's day of celebration has been usurped by the world and transformed into... A commercial bonanza. But let us who know Jesus Christ not fail to celebrate Christmas. Don't allow the meaning of the season to be robbed from your heart. As I pondered the meaning of Christmas, I thought it might be interesting to approach our Christmas messages from that theme. What does Christmas mean? And to follow this approach in the Word of God, to follow that theme as it would unfold within those pages, I'd like for us today and for the following four Sundays, the Lord willing, to talk about what Christmas means to God the Father, to God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit, to the angels, and finally to the world, for all participated in Christmas originally. What is the meaning of Christmas to God the Father? That is our thought for this morning. I invite you to open your Bible and turn with me to Luke, chapter 2, as we begin reading in verse 25. What this records actually takes place a few days, eight days, after the birth of our Lord. And it took place not in Bethlehem, but in the temple in Jerusalem, where they had taken Jesus to be circumcised. And it says in verse 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ Think of what an amazing revelation that was. How thrilled this man's heart must have been that with his very eyes he would see this anointed one whom he had been expecting for the long years of his life. Before he died, his eyes would look upon this one. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he, Simeon, took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And then if you would turn with me, please, to 1 John, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We want to think today regarding the theme, What Christmas Means to God the Father. Before we do that, it's necessary for us to talk briefly about the nature of God as Trinity. Although that word Trinity is not used in the Bible, it describes how God has revealed himself, that is, that he exists in three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is distinct. In other words, the Father is not the Son and is not the Holy Spirit. Each of them is distinct. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Each is distinct. And yet, they are one in essence. And they are equal in every respect. That's what the Bible teaches about the triunity of God. This is not the same as tri-theism, which teaches that there are three gods, and we Christians are accused of that by some, that we teach there are three gods. We do not. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. This is neither the same as Unitarianism. Unitarianism teaches that there is one God without any distinction of persons. Indeed, modern-day Unitarians, if they weren't liberal enough already, usually talk about one God with a small g on it. What we are saying about what the Scriptures teach concerning God is not Unitarianism. The triune nature of God is difficult to understand, if not impossible to understand. But, of course, that difficulty does not mean that it's untrue. There are many analogies that have been offered to help get us past the mental difficulties of this concept of God's one and threeness. None of these analogies is perfect. They all break down at some point, but they help us to begin to understand, perhaps, what the scriptures mean when they teach that God is one and yet three. For example... Any given object has three dimensions to it, height, depth, and length. They cannot be separated from each other, for they all are a part of the one object. Another analogy that has been pointed out is time. Time has three modes to it, past, present, and future, and yet it's all time. And perhaps the most familiar one is the three parts of man's nature, that we are, as we understand it, body, soul, and spirit. We are tripart beings, reflecting in that sense the Trinity of God. And yet we are one person, though we have body, soul, and spirit. Donald Cold writes The idea of the Trinity is somewhat overpowering. I think that's an understatement. But then he goes on to quote J.H. Large, who says, one cannot meditate on the awesome and insoluble mystery of eternal and infinite being without being made to realize that any inquiry into the nature of God and the mode of his existence must be entered upon with reverent caution and utter dependence upon what God has been pleased to reveal. God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now today, with deep and profound reverence for the Trinity, we want to isolate God the Father in our thinking and think about what Christmas meant and means to Him. It seems to me that to God the Father, the meaning of Christmas would include at least These three aspects, revelation, relationship, and redemption. Now, I'd like you to jot those words down because those are going to become the focus of our thinking this morning as we think about what God the Father, what Christmas means to God the Father. We're going to think about revelation, relationship, and redemption. To God the Father, Christmas in the first place involves... The fullness of his self-revelation to mankind. I repeat, as we think about what Christmas means to God the Father, first of all, let's consider that it involves the fullness of his self-revelation to mankind. Turn over a few pages to the Gospel of John and the first chapter. I want us to look at the last verse of the prologue of the Gospel of John. Verse 18. Where the Apostle John draws the line and he says this, No man has seen God at any time. Now he is not counting here the theophanies. What are theophanies? Those are Old Testament appearances of God. When God assumed a body form... And became visible, as in the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. What John is saying here is that no man has seen the essence of God at any time. We have seen only a form in which God has revealed himself, but he says no man has seen God in his essence. Why? Because God in his essence is spiritual, Now we think of that which is spirit as being rather unreal, because it's intangible, and we can't touch it, we can't see it. But that which is spirit is every bit as real as we are, indeed in some ways perhaps more real than we are in our physical bodies. God is spirit, which means that he is very real, but he has not been seen in his essence By any man. But he goes on to say, The only begotten God, some translations put it, the only begotten Son, because it's talking here about the Word, who's been talked about earlier in the chapter. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He expresses the fact that the only begotten One, Is in the bosom of the Father, which is the place of closest identification and affection. That one who can be said to be in that closest of intimate relationships to the Father, that one who is the only begotten, Jesus Christ, the Son, it says, He has explained the Father. The word explained there in the original language is where we get our word exegete. We try to practice in our church what we call expository teaching, which involves exegeting Scripture, which means explaining what the Scriptures say. That's exegeting Scripture. What does this mean? Now what John 1.18 says is that the only begotten one, Jesus Christ, has exegeted the invisible God. He has declared him to us. He has interpreted God to us. Or, he has explained God to us. In other words, that first Christmas, when God the Son came into the world, To the Father, what it meant was, now he was about to be fully explained. Fully exegeted. Fully revealed to mankind. That was the essence of Jesus' ministry in his life. He came into the world that we, created human beings, might begin to grasp what our invisible creator is like. He came to explain to us the nature of God. Did he do that? Of course he did. In John chapter 14, we have the discussion with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. You'll recall his promise of coming to receive them to himself, you recall that he says to them on that occasion, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You recall that discussion, don't you? Just drop down a couple of verses beyond that in John 14 to verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip is saying, Lord, reveal to us, expose to us, manifest to us, The Father, and that's all that we want. And notice Jesus' profound words in verse 9. Have I been with you, or so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? There's a mild rebuke from Jesus to Philip. Because Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not seen the Father, Philip? If you have seen me, if you have heard my teaching, if you have seen my life, then you have come to see the Father himself. Jesus is saying that he is the fullness of revelation with respect to God. Now, the fact is that God cannot be known by mere natural means, apart from his own self-disclosure. We have natural means of discovering truth. One means is that of science. In science, we discover by research. Through experiments and hypotheses, we seek to come to a greater understanding of the truth about creation Or nature, as the world says it. That is one means of natural discovery that God has given to us. But science cannot discover God because God cannot be put in a test tube. We do not discover God by research. Another means that we have of discovering truth is philosophy. Through philosophy we discover by reason. Through theorizing and rationalization... Men seek to come to some grip with the truth. No man seeks, rather claims, to fully understand it, but seeks to get a little hold on the truth that exists by philosophy, a natural means of discovery. But we can't understand God by philosophy. Man's knowledge of God is limited to what he himself reveals to us. Now, God has revealed himself by several means. Look over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19. The apostle explains that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19. Because That which is known about God is evident where? What does your Bible say? Within them, something like that. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident what? To them. Notice those two statements, within them and to them. God has put within the conscience of every man the intuitive awareness that he exists. God has placed within the consciousness of every man within him the intuitive awareness that he is. That couples with creation where God has made it evident to us, not just within us, but to us, And he explains that in verse 20. By the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Who? Everybody. Even that pagan person in the most remote part of the world who's never heard a word of the Bible has this kind of revelation available to him and he is responsible to God for it. And because of the darkness of his heart and his rejection of it, he's condemned. On the other hand, I believe that if he responds to it and desires more, which response would be the grace of God working in his life, God will get additional truth to him that he might believe on Christ and be saved. But make no mistake about it, that God can be known, at least in two respects, to all men everywhere. In the respect that He exists, and that He is powerful. Those two truths about God are available to all men throughout the earth. Because God has made it known to us, and within us. God has revealed Himself by several means by our own consciousness, and by the creation. But there is another means by which God has made himself known, and that is the Old Testament revelation of himself. Go with me now to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. The very first verse. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets... In many portions and in many ways. Here's another way in which God has revealed himself. It is to the prophets of old. He speaks here specifically regarding Old Testament revelation. And he says concerning that revelation that it came in many portions and many ways. What does that mean? Well, as he describes the many portions... He is saying that it came part by part, or piece by piece, fragment by fragment. Here some revelation, and there some revelation. Here again some revelation, and there some revelation. That's the way God did it in the Old Testament. And he spoke not only in many portions, but in many ways. Consider the fact that he spoke through visions. He spoke through dreams. He spoke directly. He spoke spoke through theophanies. He spoke through rituals and ceremonies. He spoke through institutions. God in the Old Testament spoke to prophets in bits and pieces and did that in many different means and ways. But all of these that we've talked about, the consciousness within, the creation without, And the Old Testament, all of those are only partial. They are not full in their disclosure of God. It was in the coming of His Son that God fully revealed Himself to us. It goes on to say here in Hebrews, God who spoke this way in ages past, in these last days has spoken to us in Son. In the Son. When it says that he has spoken, the tense of the verb means that he has spoken and he is now finished. God has said fully what he is going to say to us through the Son. Notice it says about him, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The word world there literally is ages, and what it encompasses is everything. Time, space, matter, it all came into being through the Son. He's the agent of creation, and He is the heir of creation, verse 2 tells us. And now verse 3 goes on to say, "...and He, the same one, is the radiance of His glory." Of God's glory. In the life of Jesus Christ, we see the outshining of God's glory. The glory that has been veiled because we could not look upon it is made visible in Jesus Christ. And it says further about him that he is the exact representation of God's nature, God's essence. The word representation here is our word character, like the character on a typewriter key. By the impress of the life of Jesus Christ, we are able to see by what is left the very nature of what God is, the very essence of his person. And it goes on to say, he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That position being the one of acceptance, the one of supreme authority. When it says that he sat down, it does not mean that he sat down to rest. He sat down to go to work. Just as some of us sit down at a desk to go to work on Monday mornings. So our Lord sat down, it says, at the right hand of God, there to begin his work of intercession on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's revelation. And we have in the New Testament a propositional, permanent, written record of that personal revelation of Christ. What does all this mean to us? Well, it means that we must bow in worship of Jesus Christ the Son, Who is deity himself, come in human form. He has been sent by God the Father, so that we might fully know him. Therefore, Jesus Christ is worthy of our total devotion. And we ought to give to him complete obedience because he is God himself come in the flesh and a further means regarding this book that you and I have in our hands this morning, that we must approach the Bible with reverence, not worshiping it as an object, but worshiping the God and the Christ whom it reveals to us. For this book is an infallible revelation of God in written form. Rather than making it an end in itself, we are to make it a means to the end that we might know Him. The Bible is not given to us that we might master its trivia. It is given to us that we might worship our God. What does Christmas mean to God the Father? Well, in the first place, it means revelation. It means that when Christmas came, God was fully disclosing Himself to us, in that babe in the manger who grew up then to live a sinless life and offer himself on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. God wants you to know him. God has done the most incredible thing that you might. He has sent his son into this world to live in humanity like yours and mine yet without sin that we might see him And know Him. And trust Him. And worship Him. What does Christmas mean to God the Father? Well, in the second place, I believe that Christmas involves this meaning. That it marked the initiation. Now listen to me carefully. It marked the initiation of a new relationship Between himself and his son. A new relationship is involved here because of Christmas. First, we have to understand that the names Father and Son do not connote generation. That is, as we use it in an earthly sense. When one is the Father and one is the Son on the earth, it means that the Father has generated life to the Son, so that the Son came into being because of the Father. That is not what it means in the Bible when God is called Father and Son. Nor do those terms imply any inferiority of the Son to the Father for they are equal. Rather, those names are chosen to focus on the relationship between them or the function, actually, that each of them has. They are the very same in substance, but they are not the same in duty with regard to creation and redemption. Please understand that the Son did not become the Son of God at Bethlehem, or for that matter, at any point, because he is eternally the Son of God. So that the second person could always rightly address the first person and call him Father. However, the Incarnation initiated a new relationship between the Father and the Son as the Son united himself to humanity. This is evidenced, for example, in what is said in John chapter 20. I'd like you to turn there and look at this. Some of you have never thought about this before. In John chapter 20 and verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, after his resurrection, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now how long could he call the Father by that name? Forever. That was always the right title. The Son could always address the first person as Father. So Jesus goes on to say, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and, this next phrase is the significant one, and my God and your God. It was only after the incarnation that God the Son could address God the Father as God, as his God. There are two distinct relationships between Christ and the Father. And here they are observed in this one verse. When he calls God, my Father, he points to the eternal relationship that he had as the Son. But when he calls him, my God, he points to his new relationship to God after the Incarnation, As perfect man. For it is man, the creature, who calls him God. It is Jesus in his humanity crying out at the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is in his humanity there that he speaks. What does this mean to you and me? Well, obviously you and I address God as God, and all people can and should, because we're all His creatures. He is the deity. He is God. But you and I, because we have trusted in Jesus Christ and are now united to Him by faith, we can also address God as Father. We can address Him indeed with such an intimate term that the Bible calls it Abba. Daddy. Why? Because He has caused us to be born again that we are His child. Not just His creature. Any creature can call Him God. But we who are saved, we can address Him as Father, Father, Abba. Because He has caused us to be born again. That new name by which we address Him is possible only because we have a relationship with Him based upon Christ's saving work at Calvary. Can you address God as your Father, Jesus came into the world that he might address God as God as perfect man but he came that he might die as perfect man and become sin for us he came that he might be raised from the dead gloriously alive as man and God forever so that then we through him and through his resurrection life might come to God and we, the creatures, call him Father because we're redeemed we're his children. Isn't that great? God has done that for us. What does Christmas mean to God the Father? It means that he is now establishing a new relationship with the Son so that he might redeem lost mankind And through the Son, allow those lost but redeemed people to address him as Father. And finally, what does Christmas mean to God the Father? It means this, that his plan of redemption was on schedule. God's plan of redemption was on schedule. That's what Christmas means. Turn again to the Gospel of Luke in the second chapter as we go back to the text where we started. I remind you again that to Simeon was made the promise that he would see the Lord's Christ. By the way, notice in verse 26, the Trinity. The Holy Spirit and the Lord's, the Father, Christ, the Son. Now, to Simeon was the promise made, and he recognizes the fulfillment of that promise as he holds the Christ child in his arms. And he says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, And then he specifically mentions the Gentiles as well as Israel. God had declared and designed the plan of salvation for all men from before the creation of the world. And from the time of creation onward he began working out this great plan. We see it in Genesis 3.15 as he designates the woman's seed as being The source of the coming Savior and Redeemer. We see him further working in history as he protects that seed and the line of the Redeemer from the pollution that Satan tried to bring to the human race before the flood. And yet he saved a family through that flood that he might save the line for the Redeemer. We see him further working in Genesis chapter 12 when he calls out the family through which the Redeemer eventually would come, the family of Abraham. We see him working throughout the Old Testament, preserving that line, going from generation to generation to generation, choosing the one through whom eventually the Christ would come. And then when he seems silent for those hundreds of years... After Malachi laid down his pen, God was still working as he prepared the world for the arrival of his Son. The Apostle Paul captures that in Galatians chapter 4 when he says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. What does that mean? Well, it means that in every respect, God had prepared the times for the coming of Christ. He had caused empires to be raised up and to go down. He had caused cultures to be transferred from one place to another. He had caused the mix to be such that the time was just right for the coming of his son. What did Christmas mean to God the Father? It meant that the plan of redemption was right on schedule. And he moved toward the consummation of that plan by sending his beloved son into the world marked for death. The manger scene with its intimacy, glory, mystery, and beauty was overshadowed by the cross with its agony, cruelty, rejection, and death. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. The fact is that for his plan of redemption to be accomplished, God could not spare his son, and he did not. And so he handed him over to death for the sake of the world. A number of years ago, a family went on a little trip to participate in a family reunion, as was their custom, each summer. And on that day, at that park, beside the lake, they gathered from here and there, across the upper Midwest, to see each other again as family. A 16-year-old boy And a friend of his that he had brought along to that reunion went out into the lake. And as they were there in the boat, they both fell over into the water, and neither one of them could swim. The father of that 16-year-old boy saw what happened, and he dashed into the water to go save those that he could. And as he swam, he realized that he was going to be incapable of saving both his son and his friend, his son's friend. And he had to make a choice. What would you do? That father chose first to grab his son's friend, And he pulled him back to shallow water and then swam quickly out again to where his son had been. But in those seconds, his son had gone down for the last time and drowned. That father gave his own son over to death and spared his son's friend. Jesus said, no greater love does a man have than he gives his life for his friend. The father spared not his own son, but handed him over to death, that you and I might be saved. That's what Christmas means to God the Father. I have wondered, do they celebrate Christmas in heaven? I believe without question they do. And I believe that they celebrate Christmas perpetually. They celebrate the gift of God the Father in sending his Son. I believe that that is the talk of the universe and that it will be throughout all of eternity. I guess the question for you and for me boils down to this Can we truly celebrate Christmas? This year, I do not speak of the stockings or the family gatherings or the tree with gifts or even religious services that we might attend. But have we celebrated Christmas by receiving the gift that the Father gave? Do you understand this morning that to God the Father, Christmas means that He gave His Son for you? Have you then received that gift, that love gift from the Father? If not, will you this Christmas season take that gift for yourself? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him your own. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning there would be some friend here who would do that. May none of us understand what Christmas means to you, Father, in terms of revelation and relationship and redemption, and then turn away from the tree, the cross, where that gift lies waiting to be taken. Thank you that that gift is there for each of us, May someone receive it today. Receive him, Jesus Christ, and be saved. We pray this in his name. Amen. Would you open your hymnal, please, to number 306. And as we sing this closing hymn, we're going to extend a public invitation this morning for any who today would receive God's gift. Jesus Christ if you have not placed your faith in him we invite you to do that this morning and to give public profession of that faith in Christ by walking the aisle and coming and taking my hand and saying today I am receiving Christ as my Savior I want to take the Father's gift for me and it may be that you've done that already in private but you've never made a public profession of your faith Jesus wants you to make it public, my friend. All of his disciples he called publicly before others. And today, before others, believers, for the most part in this service, I invite you to come and to make a public profession of your faith in Christ. Perhaps it's been days or weeks ago, or even longer than that, but you've never publicly professed Christ as your Savior. Will you today do that? I invite you to come as we stand together and sing, Just As I Am. I'll be waiting here at the front. I urge you to slip out from wherever you are and come quickly here to the front where I'll be standing to greet you.